Good morning. We're going to start this morning by looking at the church in China and what has happened there in the last, oh, just over 100 years. Briefly touched on Hudson Taylor yesterday and how he was able to make real inroads into China by adopting Chinese customs and respecting their culture rather than just forcing, forcing Western ideas on China. Around the turn of the century, the last one, 1900s, there was a growing resentment towards Westerners in China. The Opium Wars had been a result of Westerners getting Chinese addicted to opium, and then once they were addicted, they were giving the West really good deals in trade. The Chinese fought back, the British stamped it out, and opened up five ports on the Treaty of Nanking. This treaty allowed the West to keep their warships in the Chinese waters. It also said that no Westerner could be tried by a Chinese court. This was resulting in Westerners abusing this privilege of stealing, getting in trouble, angering the Chinese because there was no English court that really cared about justice in the Chinese. As, as I'm sure there were some, but anyway, there was a group of Chinese that were growing really resentful towards this Western influence. Christianity was seen as a Western religion, not just as a universal religion. And there was a group, they called themselves the Society of Harmonious Fists, or the Boxers. They were a mystical group. They convinced volunteers that they would be immortal to Western bullets by firing blanks at them. People didn't know they were blanks. They thought, here they're shooting guns at us and we're completely immortal. Well, these boxers went on a rampage. They killed 200 missionaries and 32,000 Chinese Christians. Among the people who were attacked was Jonathan Goforth, who was a Canadian. He was slashed in the neck several times and left for dead, but he miraculously survived and he continued to have an incredible Pentecostal-type ministry in China, where he just, thousands of people, five of his came to Christ, five of his 11 children were buried in China, and he stayed there until two years after he was blind, when he finally came home to Canada in the 70s. After the Boxer Rebellion settled down, there was a golden age in China for missionaries. The numbers reached 8,000 Christian missionaries in China. Uh, during this period where there was a more openness in the West to, I mean in China, to the West, Christianity did a lot of good. Established hospitals, education was on the leading edge as far as trying to help people get over their opium addictions, trying to end the practice of foot binding. Unfortunately, these Western missionaries, the majority of them were very reluctant to pass on leadership, religious leadership, to the Chinese themselves. And this resulted in, once the church was finally expelled under communism, uh, really the church suffered because the Western leadership left. 
I want to look at a couple notable Chinese who have done so much to advance the cause of the gospel. The first one I want to look at is a man by the name of John Sung. You can see the notes on him. Born in 1901, his father was a pastor in Asia. His father sent him to the United States for theological training, but when he was over here, he decided to get a PhD in chemistry instead. But he was convicted, he told his dad, and so he joined the theological seminary. But while he was at the seminary, he was converted by an evangelist. All his classmates mocked this evangelist for being simple, but his message so changed John Sung that his professors wanted him committed to an insane asylum because he was so on fire for God. In the next half a year, he read through the whole Bible 40 times. He went back to China, and over the next several, for the rest of his life, he just preached to large crowds. Healing was a big part of his ministry, although he tried to downplay that because he knew that spiritual healing was his primary concern. He was severely afflicted by pain that sometimes he would have to preach sitting down or even lying down if the pain was so bad. His journals have just recently been discovered and translated and they show a man who was daily repentant, hungry for God, hungry to see Christ's kingdom advance. But he said in there, for a servant of God to have authority in every sentence he utters, he must first suffer for the message he is to deliver. Without great tribulation, there is no great illumination. During the civil war between Chiang Kai-shek, the civil war happened right after the Japanese were eliminated from China. The Japanese had China under their control from 1937 to the end of World War II. It was during this time that Eric Little, you remember the athlete who ran in the Olympics, died at a Japanese internment camp during that occupation. But between 1945 and 1949, there was civil war in China between the Nationalist Party led by Chiang Kai-shek, who was a Christian, and between Mao Zedong. During this time of the civil war, inter-varsity China was established. And these leaders of inter-varsity just felt a real burden that they needed to prepare these Christian college students for persecution. There was real revivals on college campuses, and they led a specific studies on First Peter and prayer in hopes of preparing them for when the persecution came. Well, in 1949, Mao Zedong came and tried to became even more strict in, el in eliminating all Western influence. Some Christians came to him and suggested the idea of a, a three-self church, they called it. It was a church that would be self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating. And the idea was that if you could have a church, the church could still survive as long as it was cut off from Western influence. And Mao Zedong allowed that, but there were several Christians who thought that this was just, this was becoming a liberal church the arm of the state, and many people went underground. At the start of communism in 1949, there was about one million Christians in China. Today there's estimates, it's really hard to say because so many of them are unregistered, but between 50 and 100 million. 
and thousands of Christians are coming to God daily. When Mao Zedong, in 1967, he had his uh, cultural revolution, where he tried to get rid of not just all Western influence, but all traditional Chinese culture, anything that wasn't loyal to communism. And during that period, even the three-self church was shut down completely and persecuted. <coughs> when Mao Zedong died in 1976, there was a loosening of the restrictions on religion. And officially today, China, in China, there is religious freedom, but house churches are still illegal. But there's a line in the Constitution that says, don't be too vigorous in attacking them. But all these college students have, who had received this preparation for persecution contacted these missionaries who had led the, these intervarsity groups, and they just said, thank you so much for the preparation you have. Because of you, how you grounded me, we were able to weather this persecution. Today, there has been a real revival among the educated in Chinese, among the Chinese. Uh, the West, I mean, in China, they were starting to get discouraged by how communism just was not producing the answer. I mean, when Mao Zedong, in his great leap forward in 1957, he collectivized agriculture, and that led, which meant all the private ownership was farms were taken away. And that led to the starvation of 30 and 40 million peasants. So eventually, the communist leaders said, we gotta look, we're just not, we're near as successful as the West, and they sent some of their best and brightest. But what God has done in the hearts of many of them is they've seen that one of the biggest difference between the success in the West is Christianity. They've just seen that there's certain foundational principles that Christian teaches that makes for a successful society, and it's drawn to them. And apparently, Christianity has infiltrated high up into the communist government. And I'm excited about what God is doing in China. Uh, they say that when Christianity hits that 10% mark, China has about 1.3 billion, so it needs to become about 130 million. And it's rapidly gaining on the, the growth of uh, population growth. Historically, when Christians, true Christians, become 10% of the population, the, become a real level of salt and start to dramatically impose influence and there starts to be cultural change. So it is exciting to see what God will do in China. In Africa, Africa was really set back by colonialism. By World War I, there was only two African countries that weren't under the control of some European or Western nation. After World War II, a lot of these European countries, Germany and France and Britain, were so devastated economically that they just did not have the ability to police their African colonies. And several uh, African countries have won their freedom. A lot of them have adopted communism, and it's been very ugly. Colonialism redrew the lines that the different tribes had accepted, and so that's created tribal conflict. There's been tribal conflict and war. Africa is still very backwards as far as any type of modern technology, or there's very few strong democratic 
systems, as far as I understand. There's, in the last 20 years, they've tried to adopt them, and they're moving that direction. But what's surprising is how the church in Africa is exploding pretty much faster than almost anywhere else in the world. At the start of the 1900s, there was about 8 to 10 people who claimed to be Christians, which was about 10% of the population. Today, there's 360 million Christians, who, or people who claim to be Christians. That's almost half the population. Now, I'm not saying that these are all Christians. Wherever there's a work of God's Spirit, Satan is extra diligent to try to bring in destructive heresies. A lot of Africa has been seeing the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and they've tried to adopt that in different parts of Africa. For them, health, wealth, and prosperity mean something completely different than what we have. What the average North American poor Christian has is far beyond the wildest dreams of what most African Christians can have. For them, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is appealing to them because they look at scripture and it says, God promises to meet all your needs. And for an African who has been on the verge of starvation and death, health, wealth, and prosperity is having your needs met. So what they find in a good God, they, it seems obvious to them that God would want to provide, your, provide for their needs. The news media that has drawn attention to African Christianity has been much more enamored by the syncretistic African and Christian cults that have come up. African culture is uh, very unscientific, very unrational. I mean, it, it's so far behind as far as being able to have an industrial revolution because everything from sickness to weather patterns are controlled by competing spirits. When Africans read the New Testament, what they notice so much is how the New Testament says it's a spiritual battle going on. And they're so drawn to Jesus' ability to cast out demons. These are passages that most Western Christians almost just kind of skip over or even forget that these are the spiritual realities we're dealing with today. But where they have seen so many manifestations of spiritual power, I mean, Satan has real power and they have seen spiritual manifestations of demonic power over there. They live in fear and terror of that. And so when they had come to Christ, they love the fact that he has authority and power over them. Uh, charismatic Pentecostal Christianity in the sense of having an expectancy of the manifestation of the Spirit's power is what has really taken off. In a lot of ways, what we see in Africa is a very similar culture to what we had in Acts. And the Holy Spirit seems to use what the people need. And so in, in North America, Scripture says don't judge anything until it's time. It's really hard to know how much of these huge numbers in North America who claim to know Christ are genuine Christianity. But for much of the North American church, we've lost our power. We've lost that sense of the supernatural. I mean, it's, 
a lot of it's gone back to the fundamentalist, modernist controversies. The, when, when Darwin, there was such a, let me back up, as you remember from yesterday, there was such a faith put in scientific progress that people started looking to science rather than God. They started looking towards what the latest scientific philosophers were saying rather than God's word. They thought these new ideas were the ones that could be most trusted and the old ideas were the ones that were archaic and superstitious. And there, there was a, a real infiltration of almost every major denomination in America. And the fundamentalists were a group of Christians who reacted against this liberalism, or what was modernism, and there was, between 1900 and 1925, a real split between the modernists and the fundamentalists. They had pamphlet wars. The, the fundamentalists published a series of books called The Fundamentals. A wealthy California businessman paid for these, and these were, I think, almost the Got to be careful of my numbers. I think it was either 300,000 or we'll go with that. 300,000 copies might have been millions, but that were distributed all over in, in an effort to try to stem this flood of modernism, which was basically uh, a Christianity that had been reduced to morality, a Christianity devoid of the life of the spirit. These fundamentalists and what they even had as the, one of their fundamentals was dispensational premillennial return of Christ. So what was kind of sad is what got so involved in this group of people who were passionate for truth was a real pessimism about what God was doing in the world. They were because they had seen so much of Satan's power, they became more on the lookout, more cynical, more afraid of Satan's power than looking for a work of God. And because they had lost sight of God's power and became their primary passion in life was to come out from among them and be separate. They abandoned the social gospel because the social gospel had been taken over by modernists and the fundamentalists were not all of them some of them were very reactionary and so we're going to see and this is going to be one of my fin final points it's so dangerous to define yourself by what you aren't because they said we are not modernists Modernists are social gospel. We are not social gospel. But Jesus said so clearly that that's one of the defining marks of a Christian is someone who cares for the needs of his community. But they were more afraid of being labeled a modernist by other fundamentalists than they were about obeying Christ's commands. And that is something that happens every time you are more afraid of what other Christians think of you than you are about obeying the commands of Christ. So by 1940, go back to the start of my notes, 
evangelical Christianity or Protestant Christianity in North America was in a bleak state. At 1942, there was a conference to launch the National Association of Evangelicals. The idea and the hope for the, this launch of evangelicals were when we define ourselves as Protestants, we've defined ourselves by what we're against. And if we just defined, if we just joined this fundamentalist group, which was always fracturing and splintering into smaller denominations, and because they were too busy fighting and arguing with each other, had basically lost their saltiness in the culture. We need a positive term to describe who we are, not just what we're against. And so they went to the term that even people like William Tyndale had used, which was the evangel. The, the, being evangelistic meant you were a part of the good news of what Jesus Christ had done for you. And that has always been the evangel evangelistic hope for people who have called themselves evangelicals, is that they've wanted to define themselves not by their denomination, not by their church structure, but they define themselves by the gospel itself. The evangel is the good news, it is the gospel. So to be an evangelical Christian means that your goal is to live by the good news of, your, of what Jesus Christ has done for you and to be given over to him. But this is what Harold J. Ockenday, who I hadn't heard of, but Billy Graham said that he was one of the men he respected most. Ockenday was trained by John Gresham, Gresham Machen, who was a Princeton theologian who followed Benjamin Warfield. John Gresham Machen was one of the fundamentalists, but he was a more optimistic, he didn't think we sh our job was to quit being salt. Our, he thought there, would be, there was a way to be faithful to God's word and still make an impact on society. He still had hope that God's power had not left us. But at this evangelical launch of the National Association of Evangelicals, Akengay said, evangelical Christianity, Christianity has suffered nothing but a series of defeats for decades. The terrible octopus of liberalism has spread itself throughout our Protestant church. The poison of materialism is spoiling the testimony and the message of the majority of our young preachers today. The floods of worldly iniquity are pouring over America in a tidal wave of drunkenness, immorality, corruption, dishonesty, and utter atheism. Look around you. What you will see are Christians who are defeated, reticent, retiring, and seemingly in despair. That sounds like what's being said in today's pulpits. It's easy to look back and think that there was kind of a golden age of Christianity in the 50s and 60s. And in a lot of ways, the church was much healthier back then because through work of men like Akengay and the early Billy Graham, God did a real work. He, he raised from the dead his church it wasn't in the mainline denominations. It was in little country independent churches of people who were committed to God's word. And almost every one of you here is to today someone who holds to supernatural fundamental Christianity because of this revival of God's spirit. You do not hold to modernism because of this awakening that God did 
in North America. It started in Youth for Christ rallies where people would do, were very diligent to reach the educated through radio uh, shows. Billy Graham traveled with Youth for Christ. Billy Graham was born in a very, Cal to a very Calvinist family. He was scheduled to do a revival in Los Angeles in 1949, but he was so overcome with doubts about the Bible. His friend Charles Templeton, who was looked up as the better evangelist, had as far as I can tell in the timeline, recently become an atheist. He said, I just, I can't no longer trust the Bible. He, and he shocked his congregation by just walking out of the church saying, I no longer believe anything that I've been preaching for the last several years. And this shook Billy Graham. But he went out into the woods and he said, God, I just surrender my mind to the authority of your word. And right after, shortly after that, he had this crusade, well, it wasn't called a crusade then, it was just an evangelistic uh, revival in Los Angeles. The crowds were only moderate until Stuart Hamblin was, who was a Hollywood radio star, singer, was converted, and he started pushing Billy Graham's revival. Um, William Randolph Hearst, who had been publishing sensational journalism for many years, went to one of these revival meetings and said to the press, Puff Graham. So Billy Graham became a national sensation under this order of William Randolph Hearst. The newspapers pick him up. He came to Ockengay's church in Boston, and there were thousands of people who were coming around New Year's. Billy Graham saw these crowds and he trembled. He called in Akengay and a friend and he said, pray for me. He says, if I take any credit for what God is doing here, my lips are going to turn to clay. Billy Graham, during the early years of his ministry, preached a gospel that was very faithful to the truth. He, at the same time, in England, People like uh, J.I. Packer and Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones were discovering Puritan writings and they were discovering uh, theology that was more full-bodied and awe-inspiring, a view of God that they just had not been hearing in the churches. And it was leading to a, a revival of Puritan thought. These were Anglican men and the Anglican Church is based on the 39 articles, which were written by pretty strong Puritans. Uh, in the 70s, the Anglican Church said you no longer have to profess allegiance to the 39 articles to be an Anglican minister. And now the Anglican Church is pretty liberal. I think they accept homosexual priests. And... But these men over in England <laughs> were joining with Billy Graham, Martin Lloyd-Jones did not like the fact that Billy Graham had an altar call. He didn't think that that was the way to, becoming a genuine Christian was not as easy as just walking to the front of a building. He was more of this Puritan Calvinist persuasion that to become a Christian is not just to give mental assent, it's not just to sign a card. 
It's to cry out to God for him to do a supernatural act of God. It's to receive the new birth. And the new birth is not something that can be produced in yourself. Something that much of the evangelical church has lost sight of today. And we'll see that there was a real desire for these new evangelicals where God was bringing thousands to himself. Billy Graham himself acknowledges that a lot of these were just manipulated people. They weren't genuine revivals. But these leaders who had rediscovered biblical Christianity and a vision for society started to make the mistake of defining themselves by what they were against. And they were against the sectarian divisiveness of the fundamentalists. And they started wanting to pursue unity with all the denominations. Unity is a wonderful thing to pursue. But unity can only be found when there is a genuine spirit of God among you. Unity cannot be found by reducing doctrine to your common points of agreement. Unity is only found in God's spirit. Throughout church history, the times where the church has achieved unity among the denominations is when there's been an awakening, when there's been a supernatural act of God. When unity is tried to be achieved through compromise, it just always weakens the church. It dilutes the church. And this, sadly, has happened to a lot of these evangelical nations. A lot of them, Billy Graham established Christianity Today, which was a really solid magazine. He helped establish Fuller, which was supposed to be committed to fundamental Christianity. But unfortunately, North American evangelicalism has been a little too hungry for worldly acclaim, for worldly recognition and honor. The systems of, Bible, of apparently accreditation has done more to dilute solid theology in schools because the boards who give you accreditation are secular. They don't, do not have the spirit of God in them. Something else evangelicals often forget is that the truths of Christianity are you can, anybody unregenerate can repeat them, but to understand them, to grasp them, you have got to be regenerated by the Spirit of God. Just like Tim was saying, it's possible to parrot evangelical fundamental Christianity and not have the Spirit of God in you. I think this alone should be such a sobering fact. There are scripture verses that don't get preached because, unfortunately, so much of the church has become enamored with numbers. They've equated the work of God's spirit with success. In our free market view of religion, where we don't have centralized denominations cont controlling us, the way to achieve, <laughs> there's it's just this temptation to have results, to have success. And we get it backwards. We think that God's blessing is going to result in success so success then starts to you flip it backwards and you say success means God's blessing and success begins defined by numbers and then you start pursuing numbers rather than being faithful 
to the authority of Jesus Christ. And I have found this even in my own life. I have a, just a small taste. I have a, a blog. And unfortunately, I can see how many times things get shared, how many views it has. And it's so subtle to have that come in there that I want to start tailoring my titles, my message, towards being popular, being shareable, being something that rather than just hearing it, and it so invades my thinking that if something falls flat and does, gets ignored, even though in my writing I felt like God was asking me to write this, I go, okay, well, that was a, a bomb. Instead of realizing my job is not to worry about things like glory and recognition and numbers, it's to be faithful. And the only way we will have revival in the North American church is when we recognize that numbers and success and finances should not be defining our policies, should not be defining what we say. I mean, when, you, when we're given an opportunity to speak in public, we don't want to alienate the culture. We don't want to be belittled. We don't want to be made, made fun of. And this is the greatest form of worldliness that has invaded the church, is when we have an allegiance to anything other than Jesus Christ. I've got a bunch of final thoughts here, lessons from what I've gleaned. These are not all my original thoughts. A lot of these have come from a book by Oz Guinness and a book by Ian Murray. So I'm not trying to take credit for these thoughts. I just These thoughts were thoughts that I thought really lined up with what God's Word had to say. But these are just some lessons. I've been, over the last four years, we've gone through 2000, almost 2,000 years of church history. Number one, the church's greatest successes have led to her greatest failures. It's a sad cycle that there's a, such a discouragement and pessimism about the darkness of society that casts men, that caught, brings men to a place where they no longer look to government, they no longer look to numbers. The world is so far gone that the only place they have to turn is God's spirit, and they fall down on their face in repentance, and they say, God, use me, bring life, and they look to God, no other earthly idols, and God's spirit responds to that, and there's a revival, the church becomes salt and light, there's, the culture around it receives the benefit of Christians who are living for other people, who are doing work and doing everything for God's glory, and it does bring blessing and success, but unfortunately, this sows seeds of pride and self-worship. And we look around at the success and we go, I still am a genuine Christian. And we think, well, anything that I decide to do must just be God's sovereign hand working in my life. And we start doing horrible, wicked things like owning slaves or abandoning God's word or, or producing segregation in our churches like they had in the South. And we think this is what true Christianity is, and we've completely missed the fact that God's Spirit has left, and we are left with a form of godliness but deny its power. Second observation is the darkest hour is just before dawn. There's been so many times throughout church history where it looked like Christianity had come to an end. When barbarians overrode Rome, it looked like Christianity was done when there was that great spiritual apostasy and blindness right before the Reformation and it seemed like nobody believed in justification by faith. It looked like Christianity was done. There was the Reformation. 
during the Enlightenment when people became deists and Unitarians and it looked like, it looked like the church was done, God's spirit struck again. And today, in North America, it looks pretty bleak. It's hard to find Christians who have not become enamored with worldly finances, with worldly success, with... And I'm not just standing here pointing the finger. I'm under conviction too. I am a product of my age as far as often putting worldly pleasures and comforts ahead of them. This morning I was reading about the persecuted church. And I'm, I'm sorry that <laughs> I wasn't able to spend more time on the persecuted church because this is the story that's in the background for the last 200 years, is Christians being persecuted. You don't it's, feel a lot of sympathy for the executed Christian, the Christian who's beheaded. He's in glory. He has a better life. But the Christians that are hard to think about are the ones who are being tortured for their faith, who are in prison, who are watching their wives be raped, who are missing their husbands, the ones left behind. And these persecuted Christians often, they feel very alone. They, when they talk to Western journalists, they say, ask them to remember us. Hebrew says, to remember your brothers and sisters. Who are in prison. As if you yourself are in prison. As if you yourself are suffering. I'm someone who enjoys savoring life. <laughs> I like the finer things. I like just delighting in the life God's given us. And I don't like the thought that discomfort of putting myself in a prison cell, thinking about persecution. But I think if I did, it would be a very spiritually beneficial thing because it would, putting myself in that place, it would really define what are my idols? What am I looking to? Where am I finding my joy? Where am I finding my pleasure? Would that be taken away? If I was persecuted, what, am, what, am I, what idols am I letting control my life rather than my allegiance to Jesus? We need to always be pessimistic about the power of sin. It is so important that fear of God means fearing the power of sin. To be pessimistic about our own goodness, how quickly we fall away from God, how quickly we can be on Mount Carmel raining down God's fire, and the next day to be in depression, God's wondering where God went. Osganis made a really powerful point. He said, the church always goes forward best when it goes back, but not when it goes back to the Reformation, not back to Puritan Christianity, not even to Acts, because the New Testament church was full of sexual scandals and heresies. The New Testament church was no greater picture of Christian specimen than any other time in church. When the church is successful is when it goes back to Jesus Christ himself. True Christianity is not about replicating a denomination or a golden age in church history. 
True Christianity is always about reaffirming your allegiance to Jesus Christ and being filled with his spirit. This is what should be before all of us, is what does it mean to be a true Christian? What separates the true church from the false church? Romans 8 makes it very clear. Whoever does not have the spirit of Christ is not his. Jesus says, unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. If we do not have Jesus Christ in us, no matter what rituals we have, no matter what standards we're keeping, we are not a Christian. We are only a Christian if we have Jesus' spirit in us. Jesus was so clear that he came to set up a kingdom and advance a kingdom, and someday there's going to be a full and complete culmination of this kingdom. But this kingdom is the kingdom of God. It's the rule of God. As people surrender to Jesus Christ, as they receive his forgiveness, as they receive his regeneration, their lives, every part of it, their mind, their hearts, their emotions, their callings, their whatever they do in this world comes under God's rule. And that is good for this earth. It removes suffering. It, Jesus said his mission was to preach the gospel to the poor. It was to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those who are captive, to give sight to the blind, to pursue liberty to those who are oppressed. Whenever you have Jesus in you, whenever you have surrendered to his allegiance, this becomes your heart. Another tragedy throughout church history is we get confused about, we, make, we don't make a distinction between the kingdoms of this world, earthly power, the kind that Satan offered Jesus during his temptations, and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not in politics, it's not in the accumulation of wealth. All of these things can come under Jesus' lordship and be used for him, but they're not primarily found there. They're found in him. And when the kingdom of God is genuine, it will always look like Jesus. This is the important thing. It will always look humble. It will always be humble. It will always be holy. It will always have a conviction of sin. It will always have a dependence on God. It will always have a pessimism about the powers of the world and the temptations there. But it will, it will look like Jesus. And if God brings you to success, gives you power, there's going to be such a temptation to fall into worldly power, to start being defined by the approval of men, to start being defined by numbers, success, all of that. And you'll lose sight of Jesus. And when your eyes are not on Jesus, you are easy prey, no matter what kind of spiritual victories you have. Whenever your eyes come off Jesus, God wants to bring healing to this broken world. You know, there's millions of babies being aborted. God cares about those babies. There are more people in slavery today than at any other time in history, and it's often through sexual trafficking. Marriage in our culture is under attack, and it's not just attack, under attack from the gay movement. It's under attack through pornography. It's under attack from dads who, who don't know how to look like Jesus to their family, who don't know how to love their church, their wife, like Jesus loves the church. 
There are people who are in poverty, who don't have clean water. There is work to be done in our chapter of church history. Now, there's warnings all through the New Testament about how the church is going to have to deal with apostasy. There's going to deal with false prophets. Some Christians have taken this to mean that the end before Christ returns, it looks like total apostasy. I don't know. I do think Paul said that there would be the fullness of the Gentiles before Christ returns, and that when the Gentiles return, the Jews would finally return to Christ. This was the Puritan hope for much of the Puritan history, that God was at work, but it wasn't through worldly means, through politics, it wasn't through utopian societies, it wasn't through just organization, it was always through simple men declaring their allegiance to Jesus Christ above all else, and that a man who truly did that was dangerous to Satan's kingdom, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against Christ's kingdom. Those warnings of apostasies and teachers who tickle your ears always need to be before you. You always need to be aware that you're not elevating men, or you're never putting your guard down, that you never fall so in love with some preacher that you're just going to believe everything he says. You know, our actions do make a difference. Satan is always trying to find creative ways to neutralize Christians. And one of the ways he does that is he gives us a twisted view of God's sovereignty that says, no matter what you do, the future is going to turn out the same way. God knows the future, and I don't know how he reconciles this, but God clearly tells us our actions make a difference. And that God grieves. The very fact that God grieves, I don't think there's a stronger argument for the significance of human choice than the fact that God grieves. If God was like the Allah that the Muslims proclaim, that whatever happens is dictated by a karma and a fate, God wouldn't grieve that. He would just say that is. But the very fact that God grieves is proof that God lets our actions matter. You know, and along with this, we need to seek God's spirit. I wrote a little biography of A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer had a passion for God. He wrote Pursuit of God in, a, in a, just a, being overwhelmed by God's spirit. A.W. Tozer was not a very good husband. In his strict anti-materialism, he never accepted a raise, and he would spend his days worshiping in the office while his wife fretted over finances and trying to make ends meet. He didn't nourish his wife. A.W. Tozer, at the end of his life, said, I've lived a lonely life. That's exactly what his wife said. I've lived a lonely life. A.W. struggled with pride. If he had been more actively listening to his wife's struggles, the pride might not have been the same struggle it was otherwise. And this is what I see here, is that no matter how great an experience of God's power you have, whether you perform healings or speak in tongues or God gives you a prophetic word, you are every bit as vulnerable to falling to Satan's deceptions as anybody. No matter how, it's such a temptation, you've received God's spirit, you've had an amazing experience, therefore everything you say is going to be the inspired word of God. Mm -mm. 
This is why we have men like Wesley and men like Edwards and men like Whitfield, who so clearly bore the marks of fruit spirits in ways we can only dream of. And they completely disagreed with each other on certain matters of theology. Both men loved God's word. But God, when he transforms us, does not make us immune to sin, does not make us immune to heresy, does not make us immune to error. And because of that, we always got to stay humble. We always have to stay abiding. Whenever you feel pride or a sense of authority that people need to listen to me because God has raised me up as an authority, you don't look like Jesus anymore. You have a false theology. This has been such a huge problem on why the church has splintered is because they get truth and they think that's truth and they see so clearly how our fallenness lives on in other Christians but they forget that that same fallenness applies to you. We need to come to scripture always with humility and a desire to listen. James, I could come back to this, this our, church, our church should visit these passages in James 3 almost every Sunday. If there's envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not come from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking are, confusion and every evil thing will be there. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who seek for peace. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The world has missed, completely misunderstood Jesus' teaching about do not judge. But unfortunately, in reaction, Christians who have reacted to against this idea have completely ignored the other interpretation of when Jesus says do not judge, or do not judge anything. There is a place for right judgment done in humility, but there's also got to be an interpretation that applies to our life that makes us slow and hesitant to judge our brother. And I'm not here to give you the authorized interpretation of those. I'm just saying there needs to always be humility and grace. I was wondering, wrestling with this, I see compassionate liberal Christians who don't care about truth, and I see Christians who are passionate about truth who don't seem to have compassion and grace, and I'm just wondering, is there any way to have both? Is it just a matter of balance? And it hit me, the unifying factor is the fear of God. Because as you tremble before God, as your eyes are open to the, His majesty, and you tremble before Him in His presence, do you think you're going to care about truth? Do you think you're going to be concerned about falling away? Absolutely. Do you think being in God's presence is going to make you a stuck-up prig? Being in God's presence is going to give you compassion and a love for truth. And when you are not in God's presence, you are always going to fall into one error or the other. You know, the Bible is pretty clear that we're not living in a playground. We're living in a battleground. And the stakes are high simple few moments of unguarded moments and you start finding yourselves addicted to things that are going to destroy your fellowship with God, going to destroy you as a husband, destroy you 
as a sibling. There's compromise. There is dads who claim to be godly men who have violated their daughters, scarring them for life. There are people who so easy to fall away from God. Our war is not against Democrats. Our war is not against liberal media. Our war is not against gay rights activists. Our war is against flesh and blood, about the enemy who is a prowling lion, seeking whom he may devour. And I was struck by this, and I was just feeling down and depressed. I don't, that's, that's a struggle. I'll just become pessimistic and cynical thinking about that. And then the Holy Spirit started pointing me to a balancing picture. To rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. That the joy of the Lord is your strength. That at his right hand is pleasure forevermore. That Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Worldliness, John says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is all based on what we don't have. It's all based on our cravings. It's always Satan saying, you don't have this, come find it in me. And it's always hungering, never finding. It's emptiness, it's depression. It's no matter how much wealth you accumulate, it always leads to death. This is the worldliness is the kingdom of death. So the best way to combat that is to find your source and joy in what you have. And that is something that you have no matter what gets taken away from you in persecution is fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's a delighting in God. It's enjoying the gifts that God gives us, but not as ends in themselves, but as an act of worship, as turning our hearts to God in gratefulness. I don't know which of you guys have the spirit of Christ in you and which of you are just following a dead religion. I don't know which of you guys have the form of godliness but have denied its power. And it's not my place to say. It's not my place to, I don't think, try to discern that. It's my job to stay faithful to repeating the words of Christ and hopefully that convicts you. But it's not my job to come down as an authority on top of you and try to discern which one. I can plead with you. And that's what I want to do with you right now is to seek God, to tremble before him, to see if your life has the fruit of the Spirit. And I am not just pushing a new form of morality on you, saying, go home, clean up your life. You will get that in almost every religion in the world. What I am saying is to seek, what it, seek God about what it means to abide in the vine. Seek God to what it means to die daily. Seek God to what it means to die to your, your own pleasures that will destroy you. To deny, to die daily to the approval of men. To die daily to the idolatry of numbers and presence. To die daily to our self-centeredness that keeps us in depression. And to just seek, to seek God. You know, in these revivals, I'll tell you what, when God's Spirit comes on you, two things always happen. A profound, profound conviction of sin that humbles you, that makes you feel so clearly that you do not become overwhelmed with the sins of everybody beside you. 
you become overwhelmed with your sins. People often faint or pass out because they're so overwhelmed by the conviction. Once you have experienced God's sin, the only person, I mean God's spirit, sorry, the only sin you are aware of is your own. But combined with that, the other thing that always follows God's spirit is an unbelievable joy and power and happiness that comes as you recognize that you've received a forgiveness for your sins that is not found in you, but you have received the identity of Jesus Christ and you are ushered up into the fellowship of the Trinity that is so full of joy and power and life. You have a choice before you to follow Satan's deceptions and live in the kingdom of death and depression and misery and hurt and bitterness or through dependence and crying out to God, you can be ushered into the kingdom of life, into the kingdom of God. Not a place where all your problems are solved, not where you achieve instant victory, where you don't, have to be, where you don't need your accountability groups anymore, where you, you don't need that. Real Christianity is always, on this side of heaven, is always going to keep us humble. It's always gonna keep showing us our weakness and our depravity. But there's a gracious God who wants to keep inviting us back into his life, into satisfying our deepest needs through worship. God, you are so gracious to us. You are so kind. You see our filthiness. You see our wretchedness. And yet, you show us so much mercy. And I just pray that you would, your spirit would come on this room. Show us our weakness. Show us our sins. Show us our unworthiness. And then show us the cross. This is Easter Sunday, Lord. And that time when you were in the grave was such a dark time for those disciples. But you burst forth from that tomb with such unbelievable light and power and brilliance that it completely transformed their lives, it transformed the Roman Empire, it transformed so much of this world and it continues to transform us today. And aside from your resurrection power, Lord, we lose our saltiness, we dim our lights, we become nothing. I just fled this place. In Jesus' name, amen.